I it's important that we don't over glorify, you know, what it takes to make change happen because it hurts. It means there's certain levels of comfort that's not there. And when I assessed that we were going to be deep in change, we we're going to be committed to it for years. You know, I remember saying in the off staff meeting that, and I definitely said it in a board meeting, the first thing you need to do is really analyze your relationship to change. Hello, and welcome to the Emergent Strategy Podcast, hosted by the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. We're a collective of facilitators, mediators, trainers, and curious human beings interested in how to get in right relationship with change. Today, I'll be guiding our interview, and my name is Sage. I'm a facilitator, culture strategist, and architect for ESII. For those of you who may have stumbled across this podcast and are new to these conversations, Emergent strategy is the way we generate and reshape complex systems and patterns with relatively simple interactions. Super excited about today's guests. We're speaking with Harold Stewart, Executive Director and Cultural Strategist, and Tanisha Jones, Director of Programming of the Theater Offensive in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, hi, folks. How are y'all doing today? Hey, hey. hey Good. Sage. Good. <laughs> For people who aren't familiar with the, the theater offensive, can you give them a little background on what the theater offensive is and what do y'all do? Go ahead, Harold. Sure. <laughs> okay. So the theater offensive is um, really a cultural organizing organization that uses theater really to kind of advance some of our policies, positions, people's interests. Um, so we are a theater for all intensive purposes. Um, so we do present work, we do devise work, we work with youth, um, and we produce work. But because um, we were founded as a kind of LGBTQ organization, and throughout our history, there's always been people of color um, as critical a part of the organization. And about two years ago, we became a people of color organization by mission it's important for us to understand um, what is affecting our lives, what is causing us joy, you know, what are we concerned about, and then how to use the platform of art and organizing and theater um, to work towards those um, things that we've identified. Um, so we're located in Boston. Um, we've been in Boston for our whole existence. Um, and now, you know, as an organization that started LGBTQ, or, or on the kind of kind of gay and lesbian kind of identities, really leaning into the queerness uh, um, and transness of the organization. Um, and I think we think of ourselves as a kind of futuristic, forward-moving um, cultural entity. So um, always wanting to be connected with um, investigating and incubating what's next. I love the idea of a futuristic organization. What that means around how you all are orienting and how you're how you're moving forward. So there are a couple of you know, a couple of ways when I think about your trajectory as an organization, and, and I've had an opportunity to be in in community in like in family for a few years now. <laughs> um, uh, and so there are a couple of emergent strategy principles and elements that feel really resonant to me when I think about you all's work. Uh, and the first is what you pay attention to grows. I find you all very um, focused, like you're, this is what we're paying attention to. This is where we need to be placing our energy. This is what we need to grow. This is what's for uh, what we're doing now in the moment for the future. And then um, I often think about resilience, but maybe more so transformative justice, because you all have um, ridden waves of things coming uh, as you all have been in relationship to deep change. Um, do those feel resonant to you all? And are there other emblems, um, other elements and principles that 
You're like, actually this one right here? Yeah, that one. I go back to over and over again. <laughs> I would say all of them. <laughs> we will say we have printed them out. They're in our office. <laughs> They're frame. in our physical location. <laughs> like <laughs> it is not uncommon to be at the copier and like, what is going? Let me look at this emerging strategy principle and decide what I need to um, address right now in this moment of um, either clarity or frustration or uncertainty. And sometimes it can be um, small is good, small is all. Maybe you didn't need 50 copies. Um, or really, I mean, we, we post them around and try to use at least the ones that have been identified as like constant reminders because when engaging with emergent strategies and the principles, we realize how much we've internalized around white supremacy. What we know, you know, it's easy to call up mm -hmm. what you already know and what you've been socialized to do. And as simple as it is to remember something like small is good, small is all, there's always enough time for the right work. Um, that idea is competing <laughs> with, um, I, I think for me with the theater offensive, when I came over three years ago, there was a sense of urgency and we had, the organization had done the work to kind of understand um, the white supremacy culture in, in, in the organization. So we would talk about the sense of urgency, sense of urgency, sense of like, why do we have this sense of urgency? But we didn't really have an antidote. And when we were introduced in the way to um, always enough time for the right work, or, or things like that, it was kind of like, oh, wow, you know, mm -hmm. we can slow down if it's like, we start interrogating things um, differently. But what you pay attention to grows is definitely one that shows up at the theater offensive in our examination, because we are a learning organization. We are an organization that has good values. But, you know, when um, we think about deep equity, it's kind of like there's always a next step. And for me, I'll just say this and hush, um, it wasn't about what we were paying attention to, but it was like, if when we focus on what we were paying attention to, it also highlighted our blind spots. <laughs> so it was like, but what are you, not? you know, it was like, oh, yep. wow, yep. you know, and I think, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex, most of us are focused on a certain type of funding from a certain type of individual in certain ways. And could we have a grassroots strategy um, towards our other normative strategies of supporting and sustaining this work. We are in Boston. There's a lot of wealth in Boston. There's a lot of white wealth in Boston, liberal, conservative, uh, radical. Um, mm -hmm. How are we meeting our budget and our objectives? And, and for me, I don't, because I understand racial justice, it's not something that I have to do deep work. It's in my bones and things like that. Um, I don't understand, I've sought ways to understand racial justice at the intersection of economic justice. So when I came to the organization, it was like, well, let me read and understand who's funding this, how and why. And the question and the mission shift to go to people of color mission, you know, we had to assess risk and say, is this going to upset our donors? Will people leave? You know, all of these questions that you ask. And we had to be very specific about, well, who are we talking about by gender, by sexuality, by mm -hmm. race? And could that same energy, could we put it towards developing and sustaining donors that were more mission and value aligned? And it might've been a grassroots strategy, but if we paid attention to a grassroots strategy, could it grow um, as well as the other strategy? So that's some of the ways in which, but I think there's all of them on certain days and definitely a variation of the two and and the other and now again i promise i'll hush um that really I was say you don't never gotta a hush, podcast, um, <laughs> speak your truth i think as an individual leader mm -hmm. and somebody that holds a certain mm -hmm. amount of accountability is and, and i cried i mean even cried now just thinking about it never a failure mm -hmm. always a lesson um <laughs> because you know a mentor of ours and a mother of ours sage um Mama Carol McCoy had taught us and trained us that if you're going to fail, you're going to fail forward. And so just thinking about um, that even failing forward, there's so many lessons there. Um, and if you're going to go into the unknown, if you're going to lean into change, that you're going to have to fail forward in order to learn. So for me, 
it really is on a decision-making side that no matter what we choose, there's a lesson yeah. there. I think that uh, you're spot on about like what pays it, what we pay attention to grows. And I feel like in programs, we are really zeroing in on that and being intentional about the how we go into relationships, right? Even be it a partner, be it a youth member, be it anything. And and how, how when we go into a partnerships, how that enables growth in and of itself, right? The audacity of us to like, you know, sit and ask a partner before we go into a meeting, how are you feeling? Do you have water? Like it's been a it's been a rough few weeks for us. How's it been for you, right? I think that people are now becoming thrown off by that from TTO, but it's also now become a space of healing and a space of, well, I don't have to fracture myself to come into this space, right? Um, and we're noticing that not only like in our youth and mm. our connections to our youth and also our connections to our artists, but also our connections to our partnerships. Like this year we are embarking on two partnerships. Uh, I, was, I would like to say based off of like, your organization is gonna be here at the end of this because our organization is gonna be here at the end of this. So how can we share resources and lift each other up mm. through this process, right? So we didn't even go into these conversations talking about the money, talking about what we need, talking about how we're gonna do this. We came into these conversations with the idea of abundance and saying, we want to do this. We want to give back to our communities and our artists. So how do we now make that happen with uh, grace and, and positivity from both from both organizations? And so I, I, we hope too in those the partnerships that are going out now that we will continue to grow more partnerships because we, you know, I'll speak for myself and I think Harold also agrees so that we've said it before is that, you know, our survival is based off of all of our family survival, right? And our family organization survival and vice versa. So how do we work together to pull each other through this time, right? So I'll say that. I'll also say it's a constant reminder, Sage. <laughs> Even in meetings now, like Harold and I, I know I find myself somewhat, you know, swept back into the urgency of it all, given like COVID, given the cultural upheaval right now, everything, right? And I will never always in every meeting, mm -hmm. right? We have this thing where either one of us on our team or multiple team members have to confront the um, changes constant, be like water, right? And be flexible, right? Also the, the idea that, you know, trust the people, right? The people will get what they need to get done um, on our own timeline. And if the timeline isn't what we said it was, people will have grace. And all we have to do is be transparent through that process, right? Because we all are holding things right now. Um, so that idea is always, I'll say, present and always needed to be a reminder of. But I think we're going from that place where we have it within our organization, and now we see it trickling to our partnerships, trickling to the, our connections outside of us. And I know every time Harold and I see it, we get really excited about it, and <laughs> we share a moment. Yeah. <laughs> and even in our, you know, new aesthetics work um, that we're going to announce soon, where obviously you know about it, Sage, cultural strategists on their work. Yes. Um, and you know, and you can attest to how as an institution, we try to remove ourselves as much away from the process to allow the cohort of artists, community people, um, our consultants, you know, kind of shape it, mm -hmm. which you also know I'm a Virgo, um, is the hardest thing to do when we're talking about the aesthetic future of an organization that we um, are gonna have to shape and implement, but largely trust the people and say, if they said this is what they want for aesthetic work, then it is true and we have to incorporate it. And you know, the great thing is that we agree with what the people have said. <laughs> They've imagined it and, and really um, kind of categorized and, and illustrated things that we wouldn't be able to do alone. And we probably would have messed mm -hmm. up if we were there, you know, trying to get that level of understanding or whatever we would have been in the room trying to do. So I think for me, when the aesthetic work and just knowing that like, why I have to learn about it, even though, <laughs> you know, I've been a part of its um, life since it's started, but I, I have to do now the study and understand it and implement it from a place of joy. And I'll never be able to say, this was Harold Stewart's work and that feels great because it is a collective work and I came to a meeting and a half <laughs> um, and got some kind of update. So that really is, you know, the people's aesthetic.
So um, how did how did you actually find merchant strategy? Like, I'm, I'm, that's one of our curiosities. We're always like, how did how is this moving in the world, and how is it showing up in different places? And like, and when you found it, um, what was the what was the longing? Like, what were you longing for that made it feel resonant? Because you know, sometimes you find a book and you're like, oh, that's great, and you read it and you put it down, and you never go back to it. But you all makes my little heart so happy have framed copies and all kinds of things so it hit something right like what how did you find it and what longing did it did it serve for you i know and you we're going to tell the people this is not sage self-promoting but getting her flowers because we found it because of you sage crop introduced it to our organization and by introducing it to, we're a part of the National Performance Networks, um, leveraging a network for equity, where you're the program officer um, for that. And really, it was the idea first of emergence, right, is what I remember being introduced to. Um, at the same time, as a kind of cornerstone of the lane process, you know, there was emergence, kind of racial and cultural justice. Um, there was, I want to say people participatory research par, wasn't par, but it was, what is popular what is, education, popular education, education. Yeah. popular education. And there was four design racial justice. emergence and design justice, mm -hmm. right? So some of those things as an individual I knew about just from my work at Highlander and other things, but you know, the emergence um, and design justice was new. And so as an organization, we were navigating lane and deeply engaged with these new ideas of emergence and design justice and if it was applicable for our organization because at the same time we we began lane we were in a strategic planning process right and we knew that there was this was a moment like right? it was a, a cultural shift our organization was we were in engaged in a succession with our founder and longtime leader Abe Rybeck um there was a commitment to people of color leadership, people of color value. This is before we decided to become a people of color organization. But, you know, the planning process and how it would go, we needed kind of critical resources. So Lane was really informing and actually Lane, <laughs> because of the way it's designed, gave us organizational consultants to be our strategic planning consultants. So there's a way in which they were happening simultaneously. Um, and by understanding emergence, we understood the book Emergent Strategies. We began to buy copies and read it. And we had this kind of office desk copy that kind of went around. We had a and, book club, you know, We had an emergent <laughs> We had a, a book club, right. Um, and even Adrian Marie Brown acknowledges that, you know, and this is what I love about the book and Adrian Marie Brown. I watched a video of her talking about it that says, you know, some of you will read this cover to cover. Some of you are not going to do that. You're just not sitting down reading the whole book. So here's kind of a cheat sheet on how to like these parts. And I'm one of those people where, because, you know, the moment you open the book and you read, you know, this kind of invitation to take a breath, you know, it's kind of like, oh my, like, this is a different damn book. You know, it's just like, here I am breathing. I, I can't get past the opening offering because that is such a, uh, healing and, and a meditative quality that like, I don't want to read the next page that then says, um, this book can be complicated, it can be, um, you can critique it, but it has to be in the spirit of building. It's like, I need a whole week to just sit with that concept. And then we go into like, all you touch, you change, which is, mm -hmm. so it's like, it's going to take me a lifetime to really finish the cover of it. But so much of it was applicable, right, to the organization, how we wanted to plan. And our board was unanimous around, we didn't want white supremacy in our planning, but what are the options, right? Because the thing about white supremacy is that it has multiple names. It typically comes in the form of like a best practice or all of, you know, it's like we had to decode all of that first. And, you know, we were committed and we were ready, but we needed alternatives. And literally in our hand, we had the book, right? And we mm -hmm. had, we were able to engage with our strategic plan externally through Lane and internally within the organization. And yeah, that's how I got 
I got connected to it through Harold. <laughs> Harold brought this book back to our organization and uh, brought like five copies back, I think, and put it in our library. Um, and from then I was like, yes, this is something I'm really interested in. Um, TTO and I have a long historical relationship. Like I started first as a um, programs administrator, then moved to programs coordinator. Then I went away for a bit and then Harold said, it's time to come back home. And I came back home and I'm the director of programs, right? Um, and one of those things that I found throughout my time at TTO is that we we were we were already going towards values of QT Plaque organization and what it meant to be that right? But we kept finding ourselves coming up against difficulties in that in that in that dreaming that dreaming forward. And those difficulties was white supremacy thinking, right? Putting putting binaries on things, putting boxes on things. Our brain, for myself, I'll speak for myself. Sometimes my brain couldn't figure out what was the tension, but I knew that there was a wall, right? And I think that a lot of people in the organization felt that way at that time. And when this book fell on our laps, it kind of felt it kind of felt like an invitation to dream Afrofuturistically, right? To dream outside of the binaries and to question when there was a wall that we felt like we were confronting, being like, hey, I'm feeling something right now that I can't move by. Is anyone else feeling that? And if so, what are can we talk about it? Can we talk about why this might be a thing that we're all facing right now and how do we move beyond it, right? And not talking about it in a in a, a pointing at finger sort of way, right? Because also I think prior to like the emergent strategies and until we really move forward with uh, uh, QTPAC leadership, um, there was this kind of dichotomy between like white caucus and black caucus within TTO of like, ooh, like maybe there's a pointing of fingers that's happening. Maybe this is why protocols can't get changed. Maybe I feel guilty or I feel like I'm being being lectured at, but I think emergent strategies really gave us this funnel to talk about that outside of those things, right? Or maybe not outside, but inconclusive with and say that we're both on each other's team trying to move forward so we can be honest about our feelings in it, but also we can be honest by saying this situation might not be because of you or me. It might be because of the greater world that is in putting structures onto ourselves, right? So let us let us feel our mm -hmm. feelings, realize all these structures and all these systems that are keeping us from going forward and also strategize how to move forward together in a most equitable fashion. Um, so that's how that's what I'll say is what it, how it found its uh, breath within TTO. And I think currently it, we keep building upon it. Um, but Harold, you're gonna say something, so I'm gonna space. Yeah, and I, and I was just gonna say, my chief job was again, to move the strategic plan forward. Um, I think, you know, staff, once we started talking, and, what, and that meant like deep engagement with the board, right? The, our board had said, you know, we see this as the chief document that will tell us how to govern the organization, what we wanna do. And so it was an important document to the board. And like I said, so there can be something happening on the staff side, but it has to be kind of elevated up. So it was my job to kind of, you know, bring the board on board, you know, pun intended, um, which was not necessarily hard, but it had to be strategic, right? So it wasn't that they were like, no, but it's like, what are the alternatives? And I remember, you know, we'd also did caucusing on the board when we were like, you know, one, we had to ask ourselves, what do we mean? And what does the field mean when they say people of color led, people of color centered, a people of color organization, right? Mm -hmm. There was no field-wide definitions for that, but we had expressed it in some documents, you know, and in a lot of ways within the organization. So it was a real defining moment. And since there was no field definitions, it allowed us to define it for ourselves, which was great. Um, and we talked about people of color led and people of color centered and how that got us to a certain point. But becoming a people of color organization. And for us, it was by mission. It was so important to be people of color, then put it in a mission. Um, that was a process. So we had to caucus with the board. And again, we were looking at emerging strategies and saying an added um, benefit for us is that it's written by a queer woman of color, right? So it wasn't just, we were using POC strategy or, you know, it wasn't male strategy. It wasn't white. It wasn't cis. It wasn't straight. So, um, so, and if we said we didn't want to engage with the book and then the work in this way, why? Right. And it was really that that was like, okay, is it not vetted enough or is it not, you know, so it was, and, and that really, those kind of conversations, it brought out all of that stuff that we had internalized. It was like, wait, or, or, 
like I don't even want to say this out of my mm-hmm. mouth because I'm sounding like the people that I want to critique, but it's real. So uh, once we realized how deeply ingrained it was in this, and it was just like, it's all a risk. Ain't no strategy out there that's 100% fail proof. So it's either we're going to risk it with some strategy that we call a best practice. And we had 30 years of best practices that got us to a certain place, but didn't get us, you know, there was still a gap. So it really was a, I mean, I think it was, you know, I would say a goddess sin. You know, it was like it was there when we needed. Um, And because of Lane, we had some capacity there, whether it was financial or people capacity to say, hey, you know, we're in a change management. We have strategies and things like that. So. No, I love that. Mia Herndon, who is the uh, brilliant Mason of Abundance with ESII, uh, often talks about you can't practice um, emergent strategy and white supremacy simultaneously, that eventually they are going to hit up and bump up against each other. And so I love the way you are describing that. Not only did that happen in practice with trying to outline the, the, the strategy and like how you, but just even the book in and of itself, like why to use the book or not why to use the book, put you in that generative tension conversation to, to really um, highlight some things that y'all, sounds like y'all needed to talk about and think about. Um, and then what do you do with that information, right? So what does it take to do this level of internal shifting? Oh, let me just tell you. You know, then some people will say it's not for the faints at heart. And I would say, yes, it is. You just have to know how faint your heart is. Mm. Um, when I came to the theater offensive, and it's, and the reason I'm centering like my entrance, I think it's important to know, uh, I've been at the theater offensive a little over three years now, and I came into the planning process. I came from Dallas, Texas, where I knew everything about everybody. They, You know, it was just like, I was working for the city. I could go in and out of arts organizations, in and out of communities with my eyes closed and really could give you the lay of the land of Dallas, Texas from a people and cultural perspective and came to Boston where I didn't have any theater offensive was all I knew. So coming into the organization in this great moment of change meant that, A, I had to say, why are you leaving your house? Like, why are you leaving the security of Dallas to go into the unknown? So there had to be a kind of calling um, there. But what it has meant, and eventually, when I really assessed how much change we were engaged in, new strategic plan, succession um, planning was happening. And I don't know, I mean, I used to have the list, but it's been an ongoing that this was going to be more than a moment, you know, and and definitely it has been. Um, Lane is a four-year process, and then year four of Lane, we have COVID, you know, kind of happen, which means all of that change management planning and work either gets to be implemented in a way or revisited. So what I said in an all-staff meeting, because I, it's important that we don't over-glorify, you know, what it takes to make change happen, mm-hmm. because it hurts. It means there's certain levels of comfort that's not there. And when I assessed that we were going to be deep in change, we we're going to be committed to it for years. You know, I remember saying in an all staff meeting that, and I definitely said it in a board meeting, the first thing you need to do is really analyze your relationship to change, because it looks like this is not a six month and things like that. And if you're somebody who needs certain levels of certainty, I don't think we're going to be able to guarantee it all the time, right? So what does that mean about you and the organization um, in this moment? You know, if you're someone that thrives off of it, 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 you know, it's just like, you know, what does that mean for you in this moment? But that's, you know, if you're somebody, and, and it had to get into like some real practical ways, like if you're a military child and moved from family to family and, you know, I'm like, this could be quite triggering because, you know, are things like that, but it, it, we're in it and we all can have different levels of commitment by changing this organization. And there's no guilt or fault towards that um, because it's not going to be easy and neither should it be. And it's not going to be instant. Neither should it be. Um, and are you ready for that? <laughs> or how much of that do you want right now? I think I think that said it all. I mean, I think that said it all. I think that it, it has not, it has not, nor will it ever be easy. 
we are too ingrained in the systems that we that we have in the world of the white supremacist systems for it to be easy right now, right? But with that being said, I think that there is a in this emergent strategy in this book, there is an abundance of joy, right? That we feel, I think, as a as an organization, and I know that Harold and I feel whenever we talk to each other about where this could lead, right? And and what what more joy can be compounded and can be released through that to our artists, right? And so I think that's where, that's the hope nugget, right? You always need that hope to keep pushing you through. And that's for us. I think that's what keeps us going through in this. And I also think that, you know, change is constant. Like I keep going back to that fundamental principle because whenever, I know I talked to you Sage about one time during when we were doing our virtual um, theater festival, that there were a lot of artists that came into the room really tense. And I, I had to have a conversation with them where I was like, hey, you, we all have the knowledge that we need to have. You feel like you're taken care of? Yes. You feel like you're taken care of? Yes. You feel like you're taken care of and you have what you need? Yes. Then where is this urgency coming from? Where are we feeling it, right? And let us talk towards that. And I think that coming into a conversation like that and expecting people to go forward with that invites so much processing and so much uh, thought of intentional thought and intentional action and relationships moving forward, right? So it's kind of the reframing in our mind through our organization of seeing challenges as things we should shy away from, except for, and then going into them joyously, right? So when we see a challenge at TTO, I know one of the first things that I feel <laughs> is I bring it to Harold and I go, cool, we have this problem, how we fix it? Let me, let me hear your ideas, here's my ideas, cool. And then we go this way, here's that ideas. So. I think that's how it's changed and knowing that challenges right in and of themselves are difficult and take strategic planning, but knowing that we can hold it and handle it right and that we are equipped for this moment. And leaning into the complexities, which is something else, you know, big sister Sage gave us in another meeting, you know, about something else and like, folks, we lean into complexities and, and when then it's in the leaning, Bob, you know, so we, you know, we in those moments where it's like, Okay, let's lean into it and see what we're seeing and what we're not seeing because it is the challenge, you know, that's upon us. And the other thing that I just wanted to say, because, you know, when you look at the book, Asia Marie Brown is not necessarily talking about white supremacy. It's just easy that it's like it's, it's the most applicable thing, right? It's like, well, this is how it was present right now. So let me apply it to this. Um, but leaning into nature and, and you know, queer fam theory and ways of being is really what the book is about, <laughs> uh, which is also important to say, again, it was like, we look now and say, well, where's the black queer, where's the black queer film perspective on any of this, right? You know, um, mm -hmm. Justin um, Lane, who was our organizational consultant through that Lane thing in this strategic planning moment, he said, you know, I get what TTO is trying to do right now. And it seems like black queer uh, black feminists um, and especially queer feminist um, theory is the most intersectional and that was just a statement right and if it was like oh if we want to be the most intersectional organization we have to deal with some people who are thinking about as many intersections as possible so typically now if we go to black queer femme theory then it's like oh we have thought about the economics we have thought about the body we have you know we've thought about a lot of things because um, feminist theory at its core is about connectivity. Black feminist theory kind of amplifies that. And we know um, from Kabahi River Collective, it gives us things like identity politics and a class analysis and, and things like that. So um, whenever there's black film thought and perspective missing, we definitely feel like, okay, we, we, it is impossible to be as inclusive as we want to be and intersectional as we want to be. And the second thing that I wanted to say is that it's a book about nature. So it's like, how has nature been incorporated in spirit into the organization? There's some real practical ways, you know, T has a dog named Rosie. And when T says she was resigning from the organization, we say Rosie can't go because, you know, she's our comfort. She's, uh, you can go, <laughs> bye, you want to leave, go. <laughs> but the dog stay, you know? <laughs> and I mean, and it's amazing just to think about how having an animal you know, um, connected to the organization was what every person wanted and needed and desired. It wasn't like we had a mascot dog in the office before. And even now, you know, you know, I'll kiss a rock, I'll go hug a tree, you know, and really think about how nature, and especially in this moment where there's so much uncertainty in the world, but nature is still consistent. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
still consistent. Whether you want to talk about hurricanes or wildfires or the, you know, it's like the one thing that feels consistent right now and um, there is levels of clarity is nature. So let us not use that as a external wellness mm. resource only. You know, T did a moon ceremony, <laughs> you know, and all, it's like nature can be a part of our practice intentionally especially when we don't know to go and can't access anything mm -hmm. else. It's like, well, we need Rosie and we need some sage. This is for Shetty R. Dedicate this with a heavy heart. You know, one of the things that that, that um, you know we're talking about is is just the amount of of change and and how to lean into this idea. Tanisha, you, you referenced it like that. It, oh, it's something. The only constant is change, right? And for so many folks, like there comes a point where that feels like a uh, uh, whiplash. Like Carol talking about, there are folks who you know when twenty twenty hit was like, wait, I had all these plans. Some of your other uh, lane cohort, you know, members are just like, oh no, <laughs> like what, what happens? And, and is there a way that you all, it, it seems like you all have leaned into these, like the ability to pivot without feeling, um, pulled around, right? Like without feeling like it's externally just, but that you, there's, can you talk a little bit about how to, how to continue, how to, how to engage change as a constant without feeling like you're getting whiplash every time, right? identity marker to lean into about that was our queerness. And, and at the intersection of being queer and people of color, when we had to say, well, wait a minute, the the actual um, anxiety around change is not a something that we have. I mean, I would love to have anxiety around change, right? That means I've been afforded something that is constant, you know? You better say that. You better say <laughs> I would that. Be, so I'm just like, oh. so it's kind of like, you know, I'm a seventh of eight. So sometimes, you know, I start crying because my brother and them start crying. I'm just like, what are you even crying about? I was like, I don't know, they were crying, you know, but I realized this was not my problem, you know? So it was like, actually what I had because of my unique makeup as a person who has to live with, certain levels of uncertainty daily and, de and being, you know, being able to talk about it in a 24 hour period is also, we're being generous, right? Um, is that like we had a muscle <laughs> and really we was designing the organization for the unknowns to be flexible because if we were gonna engage with queer and trans people of color and especially in Boston as the core, they were still facing high levels of displacement, right? We had a neighborhood strategy and neighborhoods that were rapidly changing. So until we moved from that neighborhood strategy, it meant that we needed to be um, flexible and adaptable because the people, you know, had to. So I think for us, it's kind of like, what do we know about change? Um, because we don't know constant. Um, we don't know security in that way that is useful in this moment. And and there was an abundance, right? Uh, we were centered in a different way. And honestly, it was, we had to like remove ourselves from certain conversations that wasn't us. That was like, well, that's not our conversation. So we're going to move forward with this aesthetic work. Um, it seems like y'all got some stuff to figure out while we're trying to figure out how to implement some things we've been talking about for a year and a half um, and adapt or, you know, what if it all goes to um, a ground level again? Who is more excited about rebuilding than sustaining? And that typically is like queer and trans people of color, right? Because reinventing, reimagining, and all of those are those are values. Like we love doing that, but adapting to normative culture for survival is what we've had to settle for. So there's been you know, as much as one can develop a smile and joy, but really ownership and empowerment in this moment of just COVID alone, you know, you add, uh, apparently the world has figured out we had a race problem. <laughs> like, I'm just like, oh, yeah, oh, you know, so it's like, oh, okay, I'm glad that folks have decided they want to read books and there's all of these race resources and that, that there's strategic 
You can strategically use art and culture to advance racial. I'm, I'm glad that these are new discoveries for some people, but we can't get caught up in that um, because, you know, we know that we, we live that. But what um, is unique about this opportunity that we shouldn't run away from? You know, my dear friend who I know, you know, Sage, and I have to introduce you to um, to Nasia. And I've been blessed. Black women have shaped my life my whole life. So it's like I, I'm full of it from the youngest to the oldest. But Ashley Wilkerson would say, you know, Mook, my nickname is Mookie. This year we're running towards our fears, you know? <laughs> uh, um, and I mean, we've been on that since like high school, you know? So what does it mean to run towards your fears instead of away from them? Mm -hmm. and, and now in this moment, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, what are those fears? Now let's confront them um, in a way because we're gonna have to eventually, it's not like they're just gonna magically disappear. So as much as one can be hyped about aspects of this moment, I think, you know, we're there. Yeah. And I, I, the only things that I have to add is that knowing, knowing oneself, right? And knowing how oneself fits in the system very well and knowing one's program is very important, which is why the QTPAC aesthetic stage that y'all all ventured in, that was highly important to us at TTO, right? Because that was an interview process that involved many and many people that helped us all figure out, okay, these are the aesthetics that we're working with. This is These are the emergent aesthetics that are coming out. I'm not the only person that feels this way, right? So if I'm not the only person that feels as though queerness is ambidextrous, that queerness is innovation, that queerness is moving forward, right? Then how how do I now own that and see that as my strength and move forward as that, right? So that is why that is that work is so important <laughs> while we lean on it, because it, it tells us what we need to do right there. And that and that's just from interviewing a bunch of people and just looking at the emergent themes that come up, right? And that we're all feeling it. And it's because we've all been siloed, right? That we can't really see those emergent themes just out in the world all the time, right? But this interview process really honed in on it. And so I'll say that. And also through this year, you can even ask Harold, like me and Harold have had conversations about, you know, knowing the program and knowing ourselves and know what is, what, what is our, what is our responsibility in conversations as opposed to what is our other, other folks' responsibilities in conversations, right? And allowing ourselves to be like, you know what? TTO was on this wavelength. I don't need to get you to this wavelength. Uh, like you were reaching out to me. So that shows me that you are interested and you will bring yourself to where we are in the future, but we're going to keep going, right? We're going to be like water and keep going. <laughs> and that was one of the big things for us. One of the things, I mean, again, T and I have these unconscious individual studies about the aesthetic work and we'll come together in a meeting like yo i read the aesthetics mm. in this you know <laughs> like did you read this when you read because again like i said it's been handed over to us now and we have to learn it because we haven't you know we had a particular role in the process and there was there's two things that i want to bring up about that that has been like recent revelations and i'm like yo t um, that, you know, when you read the aesthetics work and understand that we ask community and artists and, you know, folks to define a queer liberatory aesthetic, and this is what they came up with. And then, you know, and you have to literally tear the documents apart and look for whiteness. Like, it's just like, it's, it does not come up, you know? It is not, oppression does not come up, you know? Um, but there are these aspects around just being whole that come up. And the way it's taught, I mean, and again, it's just like, you know, that wasn't my picture of liberation and it couldn't be, but now it is my image of liberation when folks talk about longing and belonging and being ambidextrous. And, you know, I'm just like, wow, because that's not mm -hmm. race specific. It's not even, it, it is queer specific because it's coming out of the mouth of, of queer creators, but it is, you know, we always seek and a, a good artistic program has universal qualities, right? So it is, we're offering something that's universal, uh, but I was like, damn, this is how our folks describe liberation in this moment, like, like right, right, right now, <laughs> you know? And that is beautiful as well as the other day, when I was just sitting, cause I'm like, what are the, you know, what's the through line? The Virgo in me is like, what is it? And I said, T, all of this, cause we were talking about what programs shift. And I was like, I read the aesthetics work. And what came to me is that this is not, none of these aesthetics are transactional. They're deeply relational. Mm -hmm. So now when we look at our programs we have to figure out how are we in relationship with people? 
So we're talking about what's the difference between devising and producing a work. We're talking about the difference between fellowships and longer residencies. Mm -hmm. We're talking about being able to have a queer family series that says, as soon as little boo-boo can do whatever, there's a program for them. And as long as there is existence of a queer individual of anybody that's interested, we typically call those people elders, um, there's a program from them. So mm -hmm. hypothetically, <laughs> at some point, we have a series of babies that have been born on our board um, in the last year, three to be exact. So just to say those three babies that have been born could engage with TTO programming through the whole span of their lifetime, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's kind of like, that's a long kind of relationship. So now wow. we're looking at what does it mean to be in deep relationship with people because the aesthetic work is not transactional. So if there's anything that we're doing that has this, you know, transaction entertainment kind of value, that's not the core of what we want to do and how we want to exist. But that's kind of like a new revelation. It's like, oh, we can talk about relationships. Emerging strategy talks about the right relationship with nature, the right relationship with change. But we can really, and in the moment of COVID, when you had to check on your people, we were in relationship with people, right? We, we knew, and they were able to have levels of trust and honesty and need and an organization you know, was able to meet the needs by saying, hey, we don't know what mm -hmm. our fiscal year is going to look like. And we've had to cancel all programming, all fundraisers, but we've done enough. And our board has said, hey, take care of the people, right? You know, we'll figure it out on the other side, which is definitely a people of color strategy where it's just like, we're going to be all right. Like we're going to pull our resources together. I can't say, but we're going to make it. So we were able to, against months of unknown, will we make our budget and things like that, say we're going to offer relief funds because that's what we have right now and that's what the people said they needed. And I'll never forget the day uh, that our board treasurer, white woman Cheryl Schaefer, and it might have been a May or June, it must have been June, after Labor Day, after George Floyd, um, after the, um, when, when people were protesting, and we had a finance committee meeting and I was like, Cheryl, I'm concerned that we know our youth are out there because <laughs> why wouldn't they be? It's like Boston is lit. You know what I'm saying? We out there um, and we know how queer youth and queer youth of color operate. I'm concerned about the youth and going to jail. And she said, Harold, if our youth are in jail, bail them out. <laughs> and to be that kind of organization where you make those strategic decisions, let's talk, that's about a relationship that says, we want you to be well and we'll figure out what resources to deploy towards your wellness and that's it wasn't you know the product for that wasn't some place some you know all of this that and the other it was the ability to live and um have some aid um in this moment and i think the aesthetics and the organization kind of is living up to that relational quality um that we're going to have to engage in if we are to survive all of the pandemics and the shifts. I'm so glad you brought that up because when you were talking about COVID, uh, that was my next that was my next question or prompt was not only did you all step into like relief for COVID, which a lot of folks did, but you all put out a bail fund, right? That had nothing to do with like quote unquote your programming and but it, it was like what does it do around your your mission and your care for folks? And I, was, I just remember seeing that email come across and was like, yes, my people are showing up for their people in every way, in every way they can. Yeah. And that's it in every way. That's it in every way. Mm -hmm. and it, was, it was so beautiful. And I think one of the things that, um, that I consider a superpower that y'all have, and, and this might be you two as the Wonder Twins, but I think it's a TTL superpower, is you all move the theoretical into practice so elegantly. So elegantly. And y'all are laughing. Like maybe it looks elegant on this end. When I listen to you, it sounds okay. But from well, the... 
please. I, I, Mickey Washington's mother, you know, it's funny because Mickey Washington's my theater teacher, my cultural mother back home. And again, when you talk about being in a relationship with somebody, their whole family is your family. So her mother, Grinnell, you know, raised us to say, Harold, um, Black children will not embarrass themselves. Like, it just won't happen, you know? So okay. behind the scenes, you know, you can be acting a fool, but when it's time for the Easter speech, it's like, oh, we about to perform? <laughs> So I, I'm laughing because I'm just like, you know, you know, we will not embarrass ourselves um, externally, no matter what the implementation look like. And we're going to dress. I mean, we still have that quality of like, we're going to do this fiercely. So it's going to look a certain way. It's going to feel a certain way. So it, it's definitely not flawless, but it, it is this thing of when is it ready to be shared and how do we want to share it? And we're constantly interrogating you know do we want to share this in a normative way and if so why do we settle on that it's like if we're going to be a queer organization let's not just use that word because it's a buzzword um and we are one of the few organizations that has the freedom we have a board that agrees with you know 99.9 percent .9 of what we do and then and, and kind of shape it a board that says create a bail fund you know that frees you up to exist in this world um differently so there's some kind of modeling going on that you know we can do but it's also about like the right time um to release something because one of the mm -hmm. things when we became a people of color organization by mission we became if not the largest queer and trans people of color theater one of the largest which meant we were accountable to different people right so it was just like when the theater offensive releases it, now we're accountable to all the queer and trans people of color all over the world because we're the largest or something like that. So it, it is handled with a certain amount of care and accountability. But the other thing is that, you know, when we worked on this mission and Justin was critical to working on the mission, our name is the theater offensive. Our lives are queer, you know, they're colored, um, which, really on some days just sounds like, why would you want to work for an organization? Like, like, like do y'all turn the lights on? Like, do you just, do everybody wear, you know, it's like, what does that look like? It is so, um, the ideas that is fraught with doom and gloom that we had to insert joy and celebration and a sense of wholeness. So it's in our mission to celebrate cultural abundance. And so it is important that, A, we have a political message that is against oppressive norms and that has a certain um, counter to it, a certain seriousness, a certain look on it. And we also have, you know, I often say, you, when I think of um, Stonewall, I see a riot and I see a celebration, right? So what is that kind of balance there that with this organization? So it is exciting to announce that we are doing something. Um, it is sexy to announce like what's next at the theater offensive because our lives are under such a microscope where they just um where there's a lot of truth in our oppression but it is not you know the whole of who we are and i think like in a testament to you know us moving into practice right i think that again it goes back to us seeing challenges as like joy and seeing ambidextrous in those challenges as like strengths right you will not I don't think I don't think at any other organization I've been at do I do I get flowers as much for figuring out how to get through something that I thought was already in my job description right but it's one of those things that is even though it's in my job description it's realizing the the labor the emotional labor the labor like being a queer black family that goes into those changes of holding a youth program right and wanting my youth to not only be okay on like the theater side but wanting them to have housing wanting them to get out of their housing where they're not welcome right wanting them to have money for tea shots like all of that right so it's the flowers for that and and that recognition with like within the organization empowers me to go forward and so when we see those challenges the reason why we can go into practice is because instead of seeing them as challenges and then shying away from them Harold and I always come to the question of, well, well, why? Like what's happening here? Let's actually dissect it and go down into it so we can figure out how to go out the other side of it, right? Instead of letting it defeat us. And so 
that's, I think that's one of the greatest thing about practices. And also we're not allowed, we're not afraid to say when we're wrong. <laughs> like we, everything is a practice in and of that, right? And how do you build up a muscle by practice, right? And so by trying new things, mm-hmm. by figuring out new endpoints and new access points, that is us flexing that muscle and learning and building that strength. And so, yeah, practice is just practice. That's all it is. <laughs> and so you, you got to do it to learn from it. <laughs> It's also when you examine like, what are the options, right? When we were thinking about becoming a people of color organization, where we said, if we're not, a, and, and, you know, I was clear, we don't have to become a people of color organization because that was an advocacy point for me. I was doing my job of doing an environmental scan <laughs> and talking about, you know, and that's, this is what I came up with. But if we don't become a people of color organization, what are we, right? And it, it got as literal to like, Let's think about theater communications group. <laughs> Typically at the annual conference, the people of color organizations go in one room <laughs> and the non-POCs go in another. What room do we want to be in? Like, I mean, it literally got to that and we were like, um, okay. One of the things that we had to figure out, what is the strategic role of whiteness within our organization and what does that look like? And there's a difference between white people and white culture and white supremacist culture and things like that. But when we examine the options, all of us, we tend to want to be on the side of something different or exciting. So rolling these things out um, are exciting because it means we don't have to sustain something else or we can see. um, And I think it feeds our curiosities. And that's the the place where it's like we want to be involved in the creation of the next hype thing you know what i'm saying so it's just like we always want to be at that place that's why we're always at the forefront of movements this is like well shit that's where the action is like why be you know on the sidelines if the action is up there you know we are attracted to the action as a cultural right and a cultural responsibility because i think about the ways in which you know things shift in our like presence how we are this filter between the normative and the possibility so Really, it's kind of like, you know, I remember when you can just sense that something was going to go down during what I call the New Freedom Summer, right? Um, When people were responding in a variety of ways and both T and I talk about what it means to be healers. And, you know, and we can, it can be in the evening and it's just like the energy is there. And I remember saying, you know, healers get in position, right? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Because it's just like, you know your role, you know what you're going to have to do. Mm-hmm. And once you understand that like, oh, most queer people have this attribute of healer, that's why we are gravitate towards the professions or create the professions and the work that we do. Mm-hmm. There's care already there. But when you connect it back to who you are culturally mm-hmm. and why you were created to be in this world, you know, it's kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, this feels like purpose, right? And things like mm-hmm. that. So I, I just don't know a queer existence yeah. that sustains a normative world that's working or not working. I think we bore of it. It is not, it does not feed our curiosities. So announcing <laughs> something new, something different really is a part of our lifeline, I think. Mm-hmm. I think we find more joy in it, Harold. Like, I don't know about you, that I feel like the more we practice, the more we find joy in it and the more we find joy with our partners, like in our other in our other collaborators. And so there's not been once, at least on this process for me, where I have felt like this was not the right step, right? It's more of aligning my gut with the practice that I see laid out in front of me, right? And my gut is telling me that it is correct and we're moving forward and we're making progress and the things that we hear back, right? Mm-hmm. I think Harold and I are always astonished by how much we hear back <laughs> in this reverberance because sometimes we just found ourselves doing and then we're like, oh, somebody liked that. Someone, someone just like wrote us a really long message about how much it means to them that TTO mm-hmm. is moving in this pattern, right? And is becoming this way. Um, even alumni, right? Like I've been talking with a lot of True Colors alumni and they have been saying that, right? And they have also within that and within saying that within us creating more patterns and relationships have been like, well, TTO is a home where I can express where I want for the future of this program and what I've been through in the past for this program with hopes of change moving forward, right? Whereas we've never really had that dichotomy and that relationship with our youth before and so I think the more we find that we're in it the more we realize like this is the thing that sparks joy in us and this has never proved us wrong (laughs) and that I cannot thank you all enough 
for this time and this brilliance. I think if there's a word that's come up more than, almost more than anything, it's joy. And, and what does it mean to follow that? And uh, uh, for whoever's listening, if you're not paying attention and don't have as many notes as I do, I'm gonna encourage you to rewind and listen again because these two brilliant beings are some of my favorite people in the world to talk to. And I'm so grateful. And if with a little permission, also so proud, just so proud to know y'all. This podcast is produced by Natalie Pert. Music for the Emergent Strategy podcast is provided by Complex Movements, a Detroit-based artist collective. The music provided is from the soundtrack of their performance installation, Beware of the Dandelions. To support the ongoing work of ESII, make a donation at www.alliedmedia.org forward slash ESII.